Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 1. We are reading verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We give thanks for your word and we acknowledge that every word you speak is trustworthy and true. It's reliable. And so, God, this morning we ask that you awaken our faith as we hear the manifestation of your righteousness in our world through our Lord Jesus. And so speak, God, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a kid, I grew up just off of Tobacco Road in North Carolina. If you're not native to the state, perhaps you're not familiar with the phrase. The phrase Tobacco Road refers to the college basketball rivalry between four universities. The preeminent university, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Duke University, the lesser of the institutions, (laughs) North Carolina State, and then the Demon Deacons of Wake Forest. As a kid, it was the players and the schools that animated so much of our time after school. We grew up on driveways, playing pickup games, pretending to be James Worthy or Lorenzo Charles. For our shorter peers, it was Muggsy Bogues and Spud Webb. J.R. Reed was preserved for the power forward. Tim Rice, perhaps, for the center. But in all the players that graced the scene of Tobacco Road in the Atlantic Coast Conference there, no one captured the imagination more than Michael Jordan. He was the legend. He was the slayer of Patrick Ewing and the Georgetown Hoyas in 1982. Everyone wanted a pair of baggy shorts and Air Jordans. And everyone played, no matter their skill level. We all played with our tongues hanging out. It was just the way it was. Michael Jordan was king. He went on to become one of the greatest basketball players of all time in the NBA. He won six national championships, multiple awards. He's well recognized as one of the greats of all time. But perhaps one of the most fascinating things about Michael Jordan, even if you are not a professional sports fan or even if you're not interested in basketball, is watching him play 
because of the utter confidence that he has, the utter confidence that he brought to the court, it was a confidence that spilled over to his teammates. Arguably, these were sub-talented teams that Jordan won the championship six times with. And it was because those other players feeding off of his confidence began to play beyond their own skill levels. Jordan's confidence was contagious. It infected those around them. It impacted them. It lifted their level of play. And this morning, as we come to Romans 1, we encounter a similar dynamic in verses 8 through 17. The Apostle Paul formally greets the church here in Rome. He gives thanks for their faith. He reports that their faith is acknowledged all throughout the Roman Empire. These Christians living here in the capital city, that reports of their belief in Jesus were spread all throughout the Roman Empire. He expresses his desire to finally come and visit. He had been thwarted several times. He wanted to be an encouragement to their faith, and he also wanted to receive encouragement from them. In verse 15, he sums up what his real purpose is. He says that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome so that he could gain a harvest there. And then in verse 16, he explains the reason for his eagerness. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In saying that he's not ashamed, Paul uses a clever rhetorical device to state simply his confidence in the gospel. I am confident in the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul was confident in the gospel because he believed through the gospel that was concerning God's son, Jesus, that he was a true adopted son whose sins had been forgiven. He was confident as a servant of God in the mission of God to go to the nations. And so he could preach to the up and in. He could preach to the down and out. He was not ashamed and he was not scared of any man. He was confident before humans. Paul had a supreme confidence, not rooted in himself or in his great learning, but his confidence was rooted in this message we call the gospel. And so he invites the Romans, and today he invites you, and he invites me to share in this great confidence. But why? Why was he so confident, and why can you share in that same confidence today? Why can we have such unshakable confidence? Two simple things that we see here in verses 16 and 17 in particular that allow us to move into this type of confidence. First, we have confidence because of the basis of the gospel. If you follow with me in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This phrase, the righteousness of God, is a particularly biblical phrase that reaches back into the Old Testament. 
And while it's a simple phrase, it also can have two different meanings. The phrase, the righteousness of God, can refer to a gift that comes from God to his people. That is, is the gift of righteousness. Paul will speak of the free gift of righteousness in chapter 5 and verse 17. He'll speak of this gift once again in chapter 10. In Philippians 3 and verse 9, he speaks of the righteousness that comes to us from God. And so it's a reasonable interpretation to say that Paul here, when he speaks of the righteousness of God, is speaking of something that has its origin in God and then is given to us. But there's also another possibility. 48 times in the book of Psalms and in the book of Isaiah, we find this phrase, the righteousness of God being used. The phrase there refers to an attribute of God and also to an activity of God. And so righteousness is part of the character of God, and that character informs the actions of God. And in particular, in Psalms and in the book of Isaiah, righteousness refers to God's faithfulness to his keeping of his covenant promises. And it also refers to then the activity of what God does in keeping those covenant promises. And because of this background and because of Paul's seeming references to two psalms here in these verses, Psalm 71 and Psalm 98, where the ideas of righteousness and salvation are all combined and they refer to something that belongs to God. I believe Paul's focus here, when he says the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel, he's referring to something that belongs to God. It is God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to his promises that is on display. And of course, last week we saw that the gospel was concerning the son who was descended from David. And what is so important about this story that was being crafted here and being shared to this Roman church that was filled with Jews and Gentiles. Paul is arguing that Jesus Christ completes the story that began in the Old Testament. That promises were made to Abraham and to his family. That their descendants would become as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. And that they would become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That this was going to be the family that God used to reconcile the nations to himself. He continues and expands those promises to Moses. And likewise through David that one of his sons would sit upon the throne. And that the nations would be blessed through the Jewish family. These were the promises of the Old Testament. And what Paul is arguing here is that the faithfulness of God to those promises is being picked up in the revelation that happens in the gospel concerning the Son of God, Jesus. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises and he's bringing them to bear. That he's the fulfillment of God's purposes. This is all put on display in him. And friends, why Paul could be so confident about the gospel was precisely because his confidence didn't lie in himself. It didn't lie in his great learning or training in the rabbinic schools. It didn't lie in his ability or in his achievements. 
It didn't lie in his well-crafted plans to take the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth to Spain. None of this was the basis of Paul's confidence. And what Paul invites us to today, what God is calling us to today, is a confidence that is not found in us, not in our accomplishments, not in our achievements, not in our knowing and in our learning, but a confidence that's grounded and rooted in him, that he is the covenant-keeping God who never fails at his promise that he doesn't forsake any word that he's ever spoken. And he has manifested that. And he has revealed that in sending Jesus into the world. Jesus is the revelation of God's righteousness. God fulfilling every one of his promises. Sending his son to die on a cross. And then yet vindicating him. Raising him from the dead. Because he is the righteous one. Without fault. Without sin. And friends, this is the basis of a sure confidence. It's a confidence that we can have because it's outside of ourselves. It's not in another human because anyone else in their fickleness and unfaithfulness will ultimately disappoint us and is not a sure basis of confidence. But the basis of confidence we have in the gospel is in God himself and his character and his activity his attributes, his actions. He's trustworthy and true. And this is the basis of our confidence in the gospel. Now, secondly, we see that we also have confidence in this gospel because of the gift that the gospel offers to us. See, we have this God who is righteous, this God who keeps his promises, And this God who has brought his saving deliverances into the world in Jesus. And this God then offers us something. See, Paul has said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Many people puzzle about that. Why are the Jewish people singled out? Well, it's because they were heir of the original promises. They're not better than the Gentiles. The gospel promises simply by temporal priority belong to them first. But there is a fundamental equality in the church between Jew and Gentile because all must believe. All must trust and trust themselves to this Jesus in order to be reconciled to God. And this is the great gift of the gospel. It is the status that we call being righteous And what is revealed for us here in the gospel is how you and I become righteous. Because, see, this is fundamentally the most offensive thing about the Christian faith. Many people will ask, well, Chuck, what do you find is the most offensive thing for people today? We live in a culture that is moving more post-Christian. People are moving past Christianity into other religious expressions or perhaps no religious expression. And so most people simply think, well, it has to do with the miracles or it has to do with belief that the Bible is God's revelation. Arguments about this or arguments about that. But when it comes down to it, friends, the most fundamentally offensive thing that turns people off to the Christian faith is the announcement that happens here that levels Jew and Gentile and puts them on the same playing field. It's the announcement that we are not righteous, that we are unrighteous. 
It's not the announcement that you have some faults and failures and you have some things that God needs to forgive. Now, see, what's going to happen in the book of Romans as we get into chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the profound announcement that everything about you is tainted by unrighteousness, that we are depraved at the core of our being, that we are out of relationship with God because of our rebellion, that we have been darkened in our minds and turned against him. But despite that, despite having that status of being unrighteous, God offers a way of reconciliation. He captures it for us in the second half of verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That is all who look in faith to the righteous manifestation of God in Jesus, sending Jesus into the world to take on our sins. He, the righteous one, going out into death on our behalf, being raised from the dead. And now, as we put our faith in him, we share in his righteous status. God doesn't count our sins against us. His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. Faith is the passive organ that simply responds to the gift that God offers us. It is, faith is the instrument that receives. And friends, what's critical for us is recognizing that this gift becomes the source of confidence because this gift looks to one outside of you. That your standing with God doesn't depend upon your performance. That your standing with God doesn't depend upon your accolades. It doesn't depend upon your missionary zeal or your fervor, even though all those things may flow from a right relationship with God. But our standing with God totally hinges upon faith that is directed to Jesus, the one alone who can make us righteous before God. In her novel, Home, Marilyn Robinson tells the story of a Presbyterian pastor and his son, Jack Balton. Jack was a prodigal. He had departed from the church, left it far behind. He returns home for a visit after many years away, and he contemplates going to church on a Sunday. He actually attends at one point, but then wouldn't go back. This is what he says about himself. He says, I'm disreputable. It's the central fact of my existence. Here's the interesting thing. As a Presbyterian son, he'd gotten something right. He's disreputable. That doesn't just apply to him. That's you, that's me, that's every one of us. No distinctions can be made. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the thing Jack couldn't get was that God also makes no distinctions about your particular sins, their flavors, or your failures. When you look in faith to Jesus, all those sins are forgiven because the righteousness of God has been manifested in his son. The faithfulness to all of his promises 
and that he has entered into space and time and history and sent Jesus in order to conquer all of your sins by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. And now when we look in faith to that Jesus, we are counted righteous. Our sins are forgotten by God. They're removed. They're paid for. And so the central fact of our existence when we live by faith is that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And that's the central thing that gives us confidence is it is because of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And so friends, in all the majesty of this letter, all of its greatness, all the themes of grace and salvation that will be poured out over 16 chapters. This is the simplicity of it, that unshakable confidence, that that comes from a God who is righteous, faithful to every promise, who will then act in accord with that faithfulness and has done that in Jesus, and who invites you to participate by the simple instrument of faith, looking to him, trusting in Christ, and knowing that your sins are forgiven. Let that be the central fact of your existence. Let that be the central thing that animates you. And it's at that point that we'll share in Paul's unshakable confidence. And so let's ask God to help us to share in it. Let's pray. We do give thanks for the gospel. It is the revelation of your righteousness. And you invite us to participate in it by faith. And so encourage us and grant us great confidence in Jesus. And in what you have done in and through him on our behalf. And may this be the central fact of our existence. May we be confident. May we boast in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We pray in his name. Amen.